Sarah. Hi, Allison. So um, last show, right, we talked about Napoleon in St. Helena. St. <laughs> um, Helena is where he died um, in exile 200 years ago. And yesterday, May 5th, that was the date, the bicentennial. And the current French president, Emmanuel Macron, marked it by laying a wreath on Napoleon's tomb here in Paris. Which in itself was a statement, wasn't mm-hmm. it? Because Napoleon is a rather divisive figure. <laughs> Understatement. Uh, to, yeah, to say the least. Previous presidents have uh, even managed to ignore the date. Mm-hmm. In uh, 2005, the late President Jacques Chirac refused to commemorate the bicentenary of Napoleon's victory against the Austrians at Austerlitz. And it was partly because at the time there was a growing controversy over Napoleon's legacy. He was being accused of even genocide against people in the French colonies, for Mm -hmm. example. Yeah, and that controversy still exists. Um, There have been calls for Macron to boycott this bicentenary. And until the last minute, he actually kept secret his plans to go mark the day at Les Invalides, where Napoleon's body is interred. Napoleon Bonaparte is a part of us. Napoleon Bonaparte is part of us, Macron said in a speech afterwards. And he insisted that France couldn't ignore such an important part of French history. We must look at our history face to face and as a whole, he said. Mm. Uh, Because, yeah, France has embraced what Napoleon did, for example, the modernization of the French state. But it has also turned away from the errors, Macron said. In other words, the imperialism, uh, the, the warmongering. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and is, of course, reintroducing of slavery in 1802. Uh, exactly. Mm. So a very delicate balancing act for Macron, who set himself up as a centrist, wanting to appeal to both left and right. Uh-huh, his famous phrase, right? En même temps, mm-hmm. at the same time, saying one thing, acknowledging the opposite, trying to embrace both at once. Um, As he said yesterday, Napoleon could both be the soul of the world and the devil of Europe. Now, Macron is facing re-election next year. And since the big challenger is the far-right Marine Le Pen, head of the National Rally Party, well, Macron is having to court the right, but he's also trying to hang on to support from the left. Yep, yep, not easy. Uh, Not easy indeed. (laughs) And calling out slavery maybe could go down well uh, on the left. Mm -hmm. But overall, commemorating Napoleon is more likely to please people on the right, especially the who are interested in reviving France's former glory. Je reviens te chercher Je savais que tu m'attendais Je savais que l'on ne pourrait Se passer l'un, l'un de l'autre longtemps Je reviens to so, Alison, this music is is from the government's advertising of the COVID vaccine, right? This this uh, happy choice. grandmother who's just been vaccinated. Um, so, the vaccination criteria now, of course, is expanded. Um, I believe you are now eligible, Alison. No, did you get it? I did. I got my very first COVID vaccine the other day. Ah, congrats. So how did that happen? Well, it's through work. Oh, fact. okay. Yeah. Uh, as I'd mentioned before, I'd been struggling mm. slightly to get an appointment and the work doctor came good. Pour vacciner, on a uniquement du vaccin AstraZeneca et on peut pas le donner à une personne qui a moins de, uh, de 55 ans. 
So uh, it was the AstraZeneca, right? Uh, lots of people in France are kind of wary of this. Hardly surprising, mm. uh, given all the concerns that have been voiced over the risks of blood clots for younger people. Very rare, of course, mm -hmm. but, but very dramatic. Uh, therefore, it's been okay in France, then it wasn't okay, and yeah. now it's okay again. Yeah, super confusing. Yeah. Um, but so how did it go for you? Well, comme une lettre à la poste, <laughs> as they say in France. Voilà, super, j'injecte. Et c'est terminé, ça va Oui. Bon, bah super. So the doctor was keen to reassure me that everything uh, would be fine. And indeed it was. It took about 10 seconds, a bit, of, a bit of a letdown almost. And I was then given a vaccination certificate, which will undoubtedly come in handy for traveling or getting access to some of the closed spaces that are going to be reopening soon, the mm. cultural venues. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I have to admit I'm a little jealous, though mm -hmm. my time will come pretty soon. <laughs> I'm sure it will. So I've now joined the 28% or so of the 50 to 59 age bracket in France who've had their first jab. Mm. And all that's very precise data. I imagine you're getting it from COVID tracker, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, we know how many people have been vaccinated, where, what age group. Yeah, the online data resource uh, COVID tracker was set up a year or so ago by a French computer whiz. And it, it specializes in turning very official, rather dry data in something much more visual with a load of lovely, colorful graphs, very, much easier to read. It's basically good data mapping. Yeah, and that guy is Guillaume Rosier, right? Exactly. He's become a bit of a local hero mm. here in France. Uh, he realized that there was a real need for the public to be able to understand the government figures. It mushroomed and then some other geeky types got involved. <laughs> it all got very good feedback from the public and they've gone on to develop other tools. Most recently, Vite Ma Dose or Quick My Jab, if you like, which shows you where there are available vaccination appointments so that you can more easily register online for a jab. Yeah, and it's quite successful. A lot of people benefit from this. Um, though some people think it shouldn't have been left to volunteers to come up with all of this. Like, where's the government? Indeed. But they are doing a good job. Rosier, who is 25, doesn't work alone, of course. There are now 40 volunteers. And one of the very first to join him in this adventure is a 22-year-old called Elias Orphelin. He works on COVID Tracker in the evening and at weekends. And he helped organize recently a COVID hackathon uh, which works on civil society-driven solutions to the health crisis. I got hold of him at 9am just before he began his long working day to ask him about this data revolution and why he got involved in the first place. I'm not at all an epidemiologist. You know, I, I don't work in science, in the medical domain and so on. I'm just a, a marketing analyst. But in, in March 2020, when France got locked down, I had much more time and I wanted to find a way to help my country. You know, uh, everybody was making a lot of efforts and I wanted to be part of it. So as in my everyday job, I'm working a lot on statistics and on pedagogy with data. I wanted to help people understand the pandemic. And so I started making charts, graphs about the pandemic. So you're really making some of this very complex big data much more accessible and, and easy to read. Yes, exactly. We are keen on statistics, on, uh, on algorithm, but not every citizen is. Now, in February, Elias, you made an official request to the government, to health officials, to make the data about COVID variants uh, available to the public. What reaction did you get? How quickly did the government react? 
So this is very funny because in March 2020, if I did the same request, no one would have listened to it. But thanks to COVID Tracker and everyone who is following us and sharing our work, we now have an audience. And this audience allows us to have a, a real impact on how the, the data is published by the government. So for instance, uh, every two or three weeks, the government sets a call with us to explain how it's produced, how it will be published, and so on. And there are some data that are still not published. For instance, you talked about the variance data. We, we had the same problem with the vaccine data. Uh, at the beginning of January, there was no way of knowing how many people were vaccinated in France. And so every time we had to make a formal demand for the government to publish this data. And every time they did it. Because I think uh, first we did it in a legal way, because there is a, a law in France that makes it compulsory for government to publish in open data the data related to, to a pandemic, for instance. And second, because lots of people shared our demand. So you kind of put the government on the spot. Yes, exactly. It does seem amazing, though, doesn't it, that a 22-year-old like yourself, along with people like Guillaume Rosier, who is also very young, should have this kind of impact at the highest level of government. Some people are even saying maybe it, it isn't up to people like you to be doing this, that it, the government should be doing it. There is something very important we care about, uh, if we can collect the data, share the data, visualize the data, this is a thing. But it's not a reason for us to tell, okay, it's time now to go for another lockdown. Or it is time now to vaccinate only the elderly uh, population. So we are fixing limits to what we can do and what we cannot do. But you're pushing them. What is your relationship with the government? So we don't have formal relationships with the government. For instance, we are not affiliated to the Minister of Health. But I think they support us because this is the, the French policy of open data. There is uh, the government which collects the data. And then there are many people such as uh, Guillaume Rosier, but also uh, a data journalists, for instance, that get this data and make it speak. And this is a, a model that we are pushing in France, not only the citizens, but also the administrations and the politicians. It would suggest that civil society is playing a huge role, actually, in the way that we can maybe find ways of moving forward with the health crisis. I think that the government alone can do a lot of things, but not everything. It is very powerful, but this makes it also uh, uh, very slow to take decisions and so on. Meanwhile, we have citizens who have great uh, ideas. We also have uh, the research world. And if we make all these people work together, we can achieve great things. Like Vitnados, an app to show where there are available jabs in medical centers. What is quite interesting is that Vitnados at the beginning was uh, only uh, an app that we worked on alone. But today, for instance, we worked with the different platforms where you can book a jab appointment. The government also reached us because they told us, okay, you've made something better than what we can do. How can we help and how can we use it to fasten our, our vaccination campaign? It's often said that France is a rather vaccine-sceptical country. And in that context, I wonder how important it is, the work that you're doing in re-establishing a bit more trust, perhaps, in science, in data, maybe even in the government? This is a very interesting question because 
it's all about trust and COVID tracker and Vitmados are independent. It's free. We don't have partnerships with the government. We are not paid. And I think if COVID tracker was made by the government or if COVID tracker was sponsored by uh, Pfizer or... Uh, Pharmaceutical giant. Exactly. I don't think that it will be that much used. The fact that we are independent is very important for people because they know that we are not doing it for money. We are not doing it for political purposes. Have you had much reaction from the general public? We get a lot of messages from people telling us, every day I go to your website, I see the, the daily data, and it is helping me a lot to understand what we are living and to face the situation. Or, uh, my grandma just got vaccinated. She's been looking for an appointment for three weeks, and I went to visit Meadows, and in a few seconds we found an appointment for her. We get lots of messages like this, maybe one, two or three hundred every day. I hope you're not having to reply to them. You must be exhausted. We try, we try to do so as much as possible, but we, we have people working on, on these public relations, of course. But uh, it is great to see these messages and to know that we are helping people, even if we are not doctors. Alison, it's incredible to think that he and, and these other guys are all working as volunteers, right, for free, unpaid. Yeah, although Rosier recently opened up the COVID tracker website so people can give donations mm, if, yeah. they, if, they, if want. they want to. Yeah, yeah, so like a, a donation thing. I imagine, obviously, this work certainly helps these young people get known. They'll probably have the pick of the jobs when their time comes. Alison, I've been reading a lot of fairy tales recently. Um, I thought I might escape the whole princess, mm -hmm. prince, hero thing, but uh, apparently I have a kid who loves that kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, it's no surprise. Yeah. My daughter was exactly the same. And now that I'm an adult, though, one of my favorite fairy stories is Puss in Boots. You know, there's mm. no sleeping princess woken up with a kiss, but instead we have, you know, this loyal animal, very intelligent, a lot cleverer than its master, who's yeah. going to save the day. Yeah, yeah, much better than the human. Well, the version of that story that we know today was written uh, by the French author Charles Perrault, who died on 16th of May, 1703, nearly 320 years ago which is why I'm bringing this up today, mm -hmm. part of our history. Um, it's not just Puss in Boots um, or Le Maître Chat, Le Chat Beauté, as it's called. He actually wrote the classic versions of the most famous tales, including Little Red Riding Hood, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, Bluebeard, laying the foundations for what became known as fairy tales. Yeah, so a brand new literary mm. genre, but he was actually basing his stories on old folk tales. Yeah, yeah. And he published eight stories in 1697. The book was called Histoire ou Conte du temps passé, Stories or Tales of Times Gone By. Another title of the book is Conte de ma mère loi, Tales of my mother oie, or goose. So in English, we know them as mother goose tales. Ah, interestingly, Perrault, I read, started out as a tax collector, <laughs> not at all a writer. He was also a lawyer, and he began writing stories for his own children after he lost his job as secretary in King Louis XIV's government. Like many stories for kids, um, there was an element of moralizing involved. Le Petit Chaperon Rouge, Little Red Riding Hood, is aimed at discouraging little kids or, or kids in general from talking to strangers. 
probably good advice. Um, also about the dangers of disobeying your elders. And Puss in Boots was aimed perhaps at encouraging boys to be brave and strong-willed, uh, despite being rather small and, and young. Yeah, yeah. What about Bluebeard, though, right? Mm. The precursor to the serial killer who kills off his wives, one after the other, hides them in a room. <laughs> kind of gross. It um, is, yeah. still, still struggling to see the moral in that one. <laughs> And of course, arguably the most famous, Cendrillon or Cinderella, about this poor wench who then uh, becomes a princess, um, is saddled with a very mean stepmother and two stepsisters. Generations of stepmothers have been rendered evil without mm. even having done a thing, uh, thanks to such fairy tales. The French even have a word for uh, such stepmothers. It's marâtre. Yeah, yeah. Perrault was worried about how his stories would be received, so he published the Mother Goose collection under his son's name. Pierre d'Armancourt, though he shouldn't have worried. He did get immediate wide acclaim and eventually entered the elite Académie Française. And since then, the stories have been rewritten and reinterpreted, most famously by the German brothers Grimm. That was in the 18th century. There also have been notable feminist mm -hmm. reinterpretations. Very welcome. And But the tales remain hugely popular. Disney, of course, yeah. gave them a huge boost. The story of Cinderella is the most filmed of all time. So let's talk flowers, Alison. Do you buy cut flowers, bouquets? Um, to offer to other people, mm. yes, from time to time. You know, back in the day when we used to go to other people's <laughs> homes for lunch or dinner. Back in the day. I, yeah, I'd sometimes take a little bouquet as a, as a thank you present. Yeah, have you ever thought about where those flowers come from? Actually, I have, mm. to be honest. Ever since I realized that some roses were, in fact, imported from East Africa, of all places. Yeah. I think it might have been around the time when there was that unpronounceable... Uh, Icelandic volcano yeah. Yeah, in 2010, which grounded flights. And, and there were stories of planes full of Kenyan roses rotting on the tarmac. Yep, yep. Oh. That definitely brought to attention something that had been happening for a while. Um, today, the vast majority of flowers in France are imported. They come from Holland. Many of them are grown there, but Holland also has the world's biggest flower market and is the transit point for flowers coming from all over the world notably East Africa, Kenya and Ethiopia, and South America, you know, Ecuador, Colombia. Mm -hmm. The flowers are cut up to two weeks before they end up in your vase, and, and they're packed and stored in refrigerators. That doesn't sound very ecological, does it? Not at all. Um, in Holland, the flowers are often grown in heated greenhouses, using lots of energy. And in these other countries where there's heat and sun, there's also not enough water, so not great either. Consumers are becoming more aware of this. And as with many things these days in France, there's a trend towards going more local. Yes, yeah, so short supply chains, which we've already seen in local fruit and veg, uh, meat, and mm -hmm. now flowers. Yeah, yeah. And it's been going on for a while, though it accelerated over the last year during the first COVID lockdown in particular. Commercial traffic was blocked or slowed down, made it very difficult to actually get the flowers into France from Holland. And so even traditional florists who aren't usually concerned about local things turn to French producers. Florists in the Paris area usually get all of their supplies from Rangis, which is the huge wholesale market south of the city. The cut flower pavilion has one aisle of local producers from the Paris area. Joanna Cacimani, who sells only French flowers in her flower shop in northern Paris, goes twice a week to Rangis to get her supplies. I joined her early one morning a couple of weeks ago. 
It's 4.30 a.m., but everyone's awake here at the wholesale market. In Pavilion C1, the air smells like plants. The sound of refrigerator vents and idling trucks outside fills the air. The building is divided into aisles marked with pink runners. And on either side, wholesalers and growers have set out bunches of flowers and buckets on the floor stacked on rolling shelves. They're patches of red, pink, yellow, orange. This is all the normal. Normal meaning wholesalers selling flowers imported from Holland. Joanna Cacimani points to the one row on the left of producers from the Paris region. That's where she's going. The day before, I get the list of all the flowers that's of it, that are available. So I do uh, order them in advance. She greets the grower, who tells her that she only has white carnations today, not the other colors. So Kachimani starts looking through buckets of different flowers. So what are you looking for now? Well, some of the colors I asked for, she couldn't get them, but never mind, I'll take other ones. So what kind are these? The giroflis, and they smell like very spicy uh, kind of flower. Oh, I think a few. The tulips that I ordered, but I'll have to check on my, probably that one here. So this is my... That's your row? Yes. <laughs> Once you approve, they, they get it ready. She approves her order. The grower puts them aside. She moves on to the next stand. I ordered freesia and uranunculus as well. So I just check on the color because I don't ask for a particular color. I just say whatever there is, I take. And then I, I mean, they, they can't show you, for instance, especially red or especially this, because it, the flower has to be ready to be cut. Depends on the weather as well. We take what's ready. It's not financially viable for flower growers in the Paris area to use heated greenhouses, which means they're more sustainable, but also more susceptible to the weather. Florists like Kachimani take what there is. Next stop is a stand selling greens really important to have extra green leaves and all kind of, you mix them all together. She rustles through buckets of other reeds and leaves, pulling out a bunch of greenish-white puffs called snowballs. This is so fluffy, so nice, beautiful color, green color. Ça, et puis de... Oui, en petite, en courte. Oui, oui, c'est comme ça. She puts aside two bunches. Then it's on to Bruno Magini. Bonjour. He grows flowers 20 minutes away from here in the Isson department. He grows a bit of everything, he says. Tulips, ranunculus, freesias, sweet peas. He's a third-generation flower grower and says current demand for local flowers is higher than it's ever been. I think it's a general trend, he says, which started with food and vegetables and such. Bit by bit, it spread to us, to flowers. When the Rangis market opened in 1969, Magini was one of among 400 local growers, he says. Now they're only about 30. We've always been here, he says. The proportion of us compared to the imports has changed. The entire flower pavilion used to be French flowers, from Navarre in the south from February to May, then from the Paris region from June to September, and then again from the south or from Brittany in October and November. 
Kachimani moves on to the next section to see Olivier Moregard, another grower from the region. He's been in the business for 40 years and says florists tend today to only focus on price. They began doing this when imported roses started appearing in France in the 1990s. Forty years ago, roses were not sold in bunches as they are today, he says. Imports made prices drop and pushed down the price on all flowers. He says that made it hard for French growers to keep up. Today, things are shifting. Roses have become commonplace, he says. They're not as special anymore, so people are now going to other things. Fashions are always changing. Luc Flick, who's been growing flowers for 20 years, says while it's on the rise, the interest in French flowers remains marginal, and he's skeptical of the recent turn towards them, forced by COVID. It's made his job more difficult because there's a supply problem. He and the other local growers can't keep up with the sudden increase in demand. Florists now say they want to get into local, he says. They say, why don't you have any flowers for us? Am I going to take away flowers from those who've been loyal customers just for you? No. The increased demand has also shifted how the Hanjis market works. Everything now has to be ordered ahead of time. If she doesn't pre-order, he says, gesturing to Kachimani, she'll have nothing. And that's really lame. She made the effort to get up early and get here. Why shouldn't she have the choice? This is a market after all. But now all we do is hand off orders. I don't like it. Kachimani picks up her two bunches of tulips, and she's done. Now the most difficult part is to find the, what we call a bol. Oh, a cart. To get... Uh, to bring everything to the car. To the car. She finds one. Now I'm going to collect everything on this one. I'm holding on to it. She goes back to each grower, piling up bunches of flowers on top of each other to bring them back to her truck. It's barely 7 a.m., and the day is just beginning. So, Sarah, what happens after all that? Yeah, well, so she brings all these flowers back to her shop, and there's a work of preparing them, stripping off the leaves, cutting the stems down, presenting them in vases. It's quite beautiful at the end of it all, lots of work. And the shop opens at 10 a.m., Business has been booming. Despite COVID? Yeah, or maybe because of it. Um, she opened her shop in November 2019. She's originally from Belgium. She worked in the catering industry for a while, then became a flight attendant for Air France. A couple of years ago, she quit all that, decided to try something new. She did a flower course, not quite knowing what she'd do with it. Little did she know what would come of it. From the get-go, she wanted to work with French flowers. She talked to me about it on the way back from Rangis in the car as we were stuck in traffic. It's not easy to start off a shop just with French flowers, especially in winter time. So first time I went to Rangis, when I arrived in November and there weren't many, I said, oh my God, how am I going to get flowers? So luckily during winter time, we have flowers from the south of France. Along with the few flowers from the south of France are also a lot of greens. You have many greens that you can work with and you can make beautiful bouquets, mixing lots of greens and flowers. Locals came to her shop immediately. The neighborhood where she opened was missing a florist and she explained to them why there wasn't much choice at first because of the seasonality. And people got into it. 
I was really surprised that even elderly people are very interested in local French flower. They say, ah, finally, we go back to normal things, seasonal things, like vegetables and fruits. And this is, many, many people are really, really conscious, really aware of that and saying, we have to do something for our children. We have to consume normally, even flowers. And it's, I was really pleased that it was such a big thing for them as well. The big test, of course, was Valentine's Day, major day for florists. They usually sell roses, but of course, rose season in France starts later in May or June, not in February. So she would not be selling roses. Even her husband was skeptical at that one. He said to me, Valentine's Day without roses, no, can't be. I said, no, there won't be any roses at Valentine's Day because there are no roses in February. I remember last year, my first Valentine's Day, I had quite a lot of customers coming in. At that time, you have beautiful redonkias, so it's very easy to explain in a way if you first explain that why we don't have any roses coming from Ecuador or Kenya. They do understand. Two only didn't approve at all, and they left. So that's that was okay. But the other people, once they know why I didn't sell roses, they said, well, that's okay for us. We change, and we change our habits as well. So that worked. Things were going well. And then March 2020, COVID, lockdown. From one day to the next, she had to close up shop, got rid of our stock. She started selling bouquets online for delivery for a couple of weeks. And when shops reopened in May, she found there was competition from other florists for French flowers. The other florists that aren't used to work with French flowers wanted French flowers as well because they didn't get the Dutch flowers. They couldn't come through. It was difficult to get <laughs> some of uh, the flowers, so we had to order in advance. So this was in May. Since then, business has been booming. People want bouquets, but also potted plants. Half of her business these days is in houseplants. People, either they work from home, so when there was a complete lockdown and they, they could get out of the, the house to go and buy some baguette or whatever, they come to the flower shop and they say, oh, this is something that gives me such a pleasure to buy a flower or to buy a plant. People, they also um, got more interested into flowers and plants. They're interested in furbishing their homes and having plants and, and flowers. So, yeah, it's been, a, it's been good. So as things start opening up in the coming weeks and months, we'll, we'll see how people's habits change or not. Mm, that is the big question, isn't it? For mm. a lot of consumer habits, in fact, not just flowers. Yeah, for sure. We're going to have to see. But for now, of course, flowers have been a success story. And we've come to the end of Spotlight on France this week. The show was mixed by Cécile Pompiani. And Spotlight on France is a production of Radio France International. If you've got any questions, any comments, do get in touch. Our email is spotlight.france at rfi.fr. And you can find us on Instagram, Spotlight on France. We'll be putting pictures of flowers there this week. <laughs> Should be pretty nice. You can find previous episodes at rfienglish.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks' time on Thursday, May the 20th. Bye, Alison. Bye-bye, Sarah. <laughs>